0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 29. Psalm 29, hear now the word of the Lord. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. At the beginning of Psalm 28, the last psalm, the psalmist cried out, begging the Lord to speak. Hear me, O God. Do not be silent when I plead with you. And at the end of Psalm 28, the psalmist rejoiced, because the Lord has heard me. He is my strength and my shield. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. And so Psalm 28 concluded with a prayer. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Psalm 29 then contains the blessing, the benediction that David prayed for in Psalm 28. Now, Psalm 29 follows the path of a thunderstorm from north to south. I don't know if you've ever thought of thunderstorms as being God's answer to prayer. They are. But if you look in verse 5, you see the, the, the thunderstorm starts in Lebanon, it's, which is up in the north, and the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. And then in verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh in the south. The thunderstorm of God's voice has rocked the whole land from north to south. And then what happens? Verse 9. And in his temple... All cry, glory. And David realizes that's the answer. As the voice of the Lord thunders throughout the land, David hears the reply, the echo of the faithful in the temple, glory. Have you ever thought that the solution to your problem is found in the path of a thunderstorm? Probably not. We live in a day when our interpretation of things is barren and sterile. We don't see connections between nature and history and Scripture because we're taught to think of them all as separate things, totally unconnected and unrelated. We interpret nature by means of careful scientific investigation, and our weather forecast explains where the thunderstorm came from and where it's going. So what does that have to do with God? we interpret history this in a similar sort of way we we carefully study into what people said and did and their motivations for why they did it what does that have to do with god well most most historians i won't join that that fraternity on this point but most historians would tell you uh don't try to don't try to figure out what god's doing that's not that's, that's not the historian's job and for that matter sadly to say we've wound up interpreting Scripture very much the same way, where we we wind up sort of isolating it from everything else. And we've carefully sealed off any overlap. It's part of the reason why I try to regularly read the early fathers, because the early fathers don't talk like that. They see connections all the time between nature and history and Scripture. For those of you who are in Sunday school today, Glenn did a great job of, of showing us this in the way that we think about, how do we think about, the connection between these things. Psalm 29 invites us to reconnect the broken fragments of our lives. When you hear the voice of the Lord in the thunder, you will never experience nature the same way again. When you hear the voice of the Lord shaking the wilderness, you will never think of history the same again. Because the voice of the Lord, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, has opened your ears so that you might hear Scripture and nature and history afresh. Our New Testament lesson comes from the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts, chapter 2, hear now the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Over the last few months, we've been seeing how book one of the Psalms is all about a world in which the king sits on the throne, David and his sons are sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and yet things are not the way they should be. Sound familiar? Well, we saw last week that the disciples asked in Acts one, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, in effect, Yes, but not in the way that you think. After all, what Peter just preached on the day of Pentecost says that Jesus has been seated on the throne of David at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has reestablished the kingdom just not quite in the way you were expecting. And at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, we see what God is doing in every single church, every single Christian ever since. The coming of the Holy Spirit means that Jesus is sitting on the throne. Jesus is king. Peter Preaches from Psalm 16, one of the books, uh, Psalms of Book 1, to show how Jesus is the Son of David who sits at God's right hand. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we don't yet see everything under His feet. That's what we long for. But this is part of what Psalm 29 is teaching us as we hear about the voice of the Lord as the voice of the Lord goes forth. We long for the day when the voice of the Lord will be heard and exalted among the nations when it says the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The, the theme of, of the waters the, and the flood weaves together the beginning and end of Psalm 29. There's the waters in verse 3 and the flood in verse 10. And God's purpose in Jesus is to establish his rule over the waters. The waters can be referring to the nations. The waters referring to what God is doing in history and in nature as well. And we've seen in the last few weeks a series of psalms that that laid out the problems of this life. Psalm 25, I am lonely and afflicted. Anybody lonely? Anybody afflicted? Psalm 26, vindicate me from the lies of of evil men. Psalm 27, evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. Psalm 28, do not drag me off with the wicked. Psalm 29 now reminds us that the Lord is enthroned over the flood. It's not just that someday everything will be made right. It's that right now, the Lord is king just like in the days of the Psalms when David was king, when God had established his kingdom, when he had begun to make things right. Now, you think back to how well that worked in those days. Not so well. David and his sons kept falling short. And that's why we have such a better king in Jesus. Psalm 29 uses a lot of repetition and rhythm to communicate the message of the glory of God. Uh, The phrase, ascribe to the Lord, is is repeated three times in the first two verses, which concludes with the parallel idea of worship the Lord. And then the voice of the Lord is repeated seven times in verses 3 through 9. The voice of the Lord over the waters, repeated twice in verse 3. Breaking the cedars, repeated twice in verse 5. Over Lebanon, repeated twice in verses 5 and 6. And shaking the wilderness, repeated twice in verse 8. And then the Lord sits enthroned twice in verse 11, 10 and 11. And these repetitions are used in order to sort of drive home the point of what is the voice of the Lord doing? Now, Partly because of this repetition, partly because of a number of features of the grammar and vocabulary in this psalm, many have suggested that this may be one of the oldest songs in this altar. In fact, some of the language suggests that it may have even come from before David's time. And what David may be doing with this is, because uh, he may be actually engaging in some apologetics. Uh, just to give you a little background here. The language of this psalm is is very much drawn from a, a pre-Israelite society from a city called Ugarit up in the northern part of Canaan. And Ugarit was destroyed before Israel took possession of the land. So therefore, these stories about, about Baal, the stories about sort of all, all of the, the Canaanite myths about Baal, would have been very much in the background and actually throughout the books of Kings, We hear that these these stories were well-known in Israel, and so it's not surprising to find the Psalms engaging in apologetics in the same way that we do apologetics today, where we say, oh, this is the way our culture thinks about things. We need to answer this the way God says. That seems to be what Psalm 29 is doing. I'm just going to give you just a brief snippet of what the Baal cycle is doing just so you can see what Psalm 29 is doing, and then we'll connect it to how the Baal cycle is actually a whole lot like modern thought. So we'll get there pretty quick. So in the Baal cycle, in the stories about Baal in the ancient world, Baal defeats the god Yam, who is the god of the waters, and then is enthroned in his heavenly palace. Baal is the storm god. He is the one who rides on the clouds of heaven. Baal thunders from his heavenly throne. So I'll quote a portion of the Baal cycle. Then Baal opened a slit in the clouds. Baal sounded his holy voice. Baal thundered from his lips. The earth's high palaces shook. So that's a song about Baal that comes from centuries before David's time. Now, Psalm 29 is pretty clearly responding to the Baal cycle. When Psalm twenty nine says that the God of glory thunders and then says, Oh, but this God we're not talking about Baal here, we're talking about Yahweh. Yahweh is the God who thunders, not Baal. And but it's not just doing a one for one replacement. As as Robert Alter puts it, the relation of this Psalm, like a good many others, to the old Canaanite traditions is roughly like that of Paradise Lost to Homer's Iliad. I mean, Homer gave Milton a model. Homer writes 25 centuries before Milton. But what Milton does is he takes, he takes this epic tradition and he then tells a very Christian story. And what Psalm 29 does is doesn't just replace Baal with Yahweh, rather gives an entirely different understanding of who God is. So let me fast forward 3,000 years, because rather than talk about Baal, let's talk about a modern myth. The atheist will say, in the beginning, there was a big bang. The Christian will say, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And bang, there was light. Now, in one sense, both the atheist and the Christian will say that it all began with a bang. But there are two very different things going on here. The atheist has to try to explain that bang out of some pre-existing matter, energy, or something because there had to be something that went bang. Whereas the Christian believes that at that moment all things were called into being by the voice of the Lord. The atheist has no idea where it all came from. The atheist must take it either as an article of faith that something came out of nothing or that something has always existed. In other words, the atheist view of the origin of the world has exactly the same starting point as the Baal cycle. The Baal cycle is not presented as divine revelation. They don't present this as, this is what God has revealed to us. It is man's best effort at explaining the world as he found it. 3,000 years later, humanity has a different explanation in the atheistic account of of the origins of the universe, but it rests on precisely the same foundation. This story makes the best sense of what we've seen and experienced. It's the best we got, but we've got no revelation to tell us what God has said. But into humanity's best guess, the voice of the Lord speaks. The same voice that rebuked the Baal cycle 3,000 years ago, Now rebukes the atheist cycle, and indeed every myth that refuses to ascribe to the Lord all glory and strength. Psalm 29 calls the the heavenly beings to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord. Heavenly beings translates sons of the gods, or perhaps sons of God. The only other place where this exact phrase occurs is in Psalm 89. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the gods is like the Lord? It's referring to uh, what the nations would call gods. Who are these heavenly beings? We oftentimes use the term angels nowadays, uh, but that's just one of the many Greek words the New Testament uses to refer to heavenly beings. You know, principalities and powers would be, would be a couple of others. The Psalms often speak of the, the heavenly council. Uh, the book of Job speaks of the sons of God, slightly different phrase, but probably the same meaning, presenting themselves before the Lord. So the sons of God, the, the picture there is these, the, various, the, the various heavenly beings present themselves before the throne of God. And Satan is there. In the book of Job, Satan shows up at the right hand of God. Has that ever struck anybody as odd? How can Satan show up at the right hand of God? What's he doing there? Why does God let him into his presence? Now, I would also suggest that Baal, Zeus, Thor, Ammon-Ra are also all there. I'm not saying that The ancient mythologies are even remotely telling the truth about these beings. That's a pack of lies. But the ancient mythologies are referring to heavenly beings. And the Psalms say there are heavenly beings. And the New Testament says there are heavenly beings. Uh, Paul says, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There are, as Paul says in Ephesians, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Psalm 29 calls on them to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, particularly the glory of his name, the glory due his name. Now, we don't have a ton of information in the scriptures about what all these principalities and powers are doing. Uh, but if, if you want sort of one of the best sort of pictures of this, read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. Because Lewis does a great job of describing how the principalities and powers might relate to the modern age if you want to think about how does this work? How, is this, how does all this happen? But what we do know is that Psalm 29 calls on them to worship the Lord. Why is David telling the heavenly powers to worship God? Well, think back to the book of Job. What is Satan doing in the heavenly assembly? He comes as the accuser of the brethren. Now, why is the accuser of the brethren able to come and go as he pleases before God? Well, for this, we need to go back to the Garden of Eden. Because in Eden, God had... Planted a garden, which was the sanctuary that God built to dwell with his people. Adam was told to work and to guard this garden sanctuary, and Adam failed. The serpent entered the sanctuary. Adam and Eve listened to the voice of the serpent, not the voice of the Lord. And from that day forward, Satan ruled in place of Adam. Now, Satan was a usurper. He had no right to Adam's throne. But, as is the case with all usurpers, when a usurper seizes the throne, practically speaking, they rule. So what does Jesus do about all this? Well, Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does that mean? Well, Satan was in heaven, and now he's not. Matthew Also, Jesus says that that you must first bind the strong man before plundering his house, and that's what Jesus says he's doing. And then in the book of Revelation, John sees the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan thrown down to the earth, and he hears a loud voice in Revelation 12 saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. This is what Jesus did in his ascension to the right hand of the Father. This is what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. Because David, in Psalm 29, said to the heavenly beings, Worship the Lord. Because David understood. This was his calling as the Lord's anointed. As the Lord's anointed, David is called to cast down Satan. It's just, uh, David just couldn't quite get there. Because he was not God and man in one person. But he knew it was his calling. It was his calling as the Lord's anointed to restore the kingdom. Not just restore the kingdom on a little piece of real estate here in the Middle East. But restore the kingdom of God over all the earth. That was his ultimate calling. And that's what he's doing in Psalm 29 when he takes down the Baal myth and says, no, it's not about Baal. Yahweh is the Lord over all the nations. That's what Jesus is doing. Because Psalm 2, and we've seen this already in in book 1, Psalm 2 said, The Lord's anointed would rule the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 8 spoke of how God placed all things under the feet of the Son of Man, the Son of Adam. And the Davidic king is the one who inherits that promise. Psalm 24 had said that the man with a pure heart will ascend the hill of the Lord. David knew, well, okay, I got a problem with that one. But this is where we're going. Because the Lord of hosts is the King of glory. The son of David is tasked with nothing less than a cosmic task. He is called to restore order, not just in a little piece of real estate on earth, but also in the heavens. Because of the serpent, because of the sin of Adam, the proper order of creation was overthrown. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he made war on the devil and his angels and threw them down from heaven so that they might no longer accuse his brothers because no longer is Satan allowed before the throne of God. Why? Because there is a man one who wears our nature, one who bears our nature, one who shares our nature, now sits at the right hand of the Father and so the accuser of the brethren can't get anywhere close because the son of Adam is sitting there and saying, no, you can't. That's what Pentecost is all about, because not only did Jesus sit down at the right hand of the Father, but he poured his Spirit out on us that we might share in his life. We have been united to him so that we might no longer be under that wrath and curse, but we might be his forever. And since that day, Satan has not dared to show his face in the heavenly assembly. Jesus stood at the threshold of the heavenly temple and said, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the gods. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. If you're not doing that, get out of here. And they had to obey. And now we hear the voice of the Lord in the voice of Jesus. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. In the Baal cycle, Yom, the God of waters, attacks Baal. You'll notice there's no hint of danger here. (laughs) It's not that, ah, the waters are attacking Jesus. No, 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 no. Yahweh is not threatened by the waters. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Baal is a little bit of nothing compared to Yahweh because Baal was a creature. Yahweh is the creator. Verses three through nine portray the voice of the Lord as a thunderstorm moving across the land from north to south, and the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon in the north and shakes the wilderness of Kadesh in the south. What do you hear in the thunder? When you hear the thunder, is it is it simply a shockwave? Well, Psalm twenty nine calls you to hear the voice of the Lord. Because when you hear the voice of the Lord in the thunder, you hear not only the power of God in nature, but also the power of God in history. The song of the sea in Exodus 15, the song of Deborah in Judges 5, both use the imagery of a great storm in speaking of how God comes in judgment against his enemies. Indeed, this is the way that the the voice of the Lord will be heard in the book of Revelation. After each of the the sevens in the book of Revelation, after the seventh seal, there are peals of thunder. After the seventh trumpet, God's temple in heaven was opened, and there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. After the seventh bowl, there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. The sevens in the book of Revelation are all proclaiming the word of the Lord, and the thunder is God's speaking in the midst, and so we need to hear the voice of the Lord in history, the voice of the Lord in nature, the voice of the Lord in the thunder. Because it's the coming of judgment in the Psalms is not a bad thing. It's a very good thing that judgment is coming, because it's only when judgment comes that God will vindicate his people. That's why Jesus came to be baptized. He told John it was fitting for him to fulfill all righteousness. What are the pictures of baptism that the New Testament uses? In 1 Peter 3, it's the flood. In 1 Corinthians 10, it's the Red Sea. And they're both called baptisms in the New Testament. These waters of judgment. Why? Well, because before Jesus could be enthroned above the waters... He first had to pass through the waters. The baptism of Jesus, after all, is his taking the waters on himself. He is enduring the waters and triumphing over them. It was at the Jordan River, after all, when the father said, This is my beloved son, thereby rendering his verdict regarding Jesus. And in Jesus, all those who hope in him. Well, the voice of the Lord now moves from north to south, breaking the cedars of Lebanon. Now, the cedars of Lebanon, this is what's used in all the great temples and palaces of the ancient world. And the voice of the Lord splits them apart. Today we might say, the voice of the Lord is a solar flare, a geomagnetic storm that fries the electrical grid. Honestly? If you think about... I mean, if the voice of the Lord shatters the cedars, thereby making temples unable to be built, what's the, what are the modern temples? Geomagnetic storm that wipes out the electrical grid. Whoa, that's something serious. Thunderstorms are like, yeah, who cares? So let's go geomagnetic storm. The voice of the... You need to see the voice of the Lord every time you hear, you hear those, you know, astrologers, astronomers, what do they call them again? Um, you know, every time we hear... I want you to see stronger connections between those two. That's just important. But just recognizing that when we think about the heavens, we should see that God is at work. And he makes the the mountains of Lebanon and Syria skip like calves. I know you don't usually think of mountains skipping like calves. uh, But that's how powerful the voice of the Lord is. When the Lord speaks, even a mountain will jump like a skittish calf in a thunderstorm. And then you start thinking, wait a second, didn't Jesus talk about this? If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. How, how does faith move mountains? It's not because my faith is so powerful. It's because the voice of the Lord is powerful. And the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. On Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit came and the voice of the Lord flashed with flames of fire. We see His voice as it flashes forth. We feel His voice as it shakes the wilderness with an earthquake. When the voice of the Lord speaks, you see, you hear, you feel. And when God speaks, things happen. When God speaks, creation obeys. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. What, is, what does it mean to strip the forest bear, to the deserts. Well, Jerome said this well at the end of the 4th century. The desert was the church that at first had no children. Think of all through the Old Testament. As the word of the Lord goes forth, there's not much that happens. The gospel doesn't go very far. Oh, you get people converting to to the Lord from all sorts of different nations, but then it just doesn't seem to go anywhere. But on Pentecost, you get 3,000 in a single day, and then amazingly over the next couple centuries, the gospel just goes whoosh all over the ancient world. And so Jerome says, By the preaching of Christ, this wilderness was shaken and came to labor and gave birth and there was, a bo- and was born in a single day an entire nation, the 3,000 at Pentecost. She who before was called the wilderness of Kadesh, the, the desert of holiness. And he's right. Kadesh and holiness are, sound very much the same inasmuch as she had been barren of virtues, began to bring forth deer and send out in throngs holy people while they are running throughout the world proclaiming the gospel of Christ, that in his temple all say glory to God. Remember where we started. David had called all the sons of the gods, all the heavenly beings, to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord, to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And this is what Jesus, the son of David, does when he brings about the heavenly worship. And now, here at the end of the psalm, the focus turns to earth as the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, the wilderness of holiness. And when the voice of the Lord shakes both the heavens and the earth, then all in His temple cry glory. When the Son of David sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, then will come to pass the promise of the Lord's benediction in verses 10 and 11, that the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. This is the only time in the Old Testament outside of Genesis 6 through 9 that the word flood is used. So th- th- this is not just speaking of lots of water in general. This is speaking of the flood that you're from Noah's day the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The same God who brought judgment on earth in the days of Noah is the same God who speaks in the thunder today and who will bring judgment at the final day. And when the Lord sits enthroned as king, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, may the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. You see... Psalm 29 began with ascribing glory and strength to God because we don't give glory to God. we ascribe, we, we declare it because what is already there. But the Lord gives strength to us. We don't have strength to begin with. He, he gives strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Do we take blessing seriously anymore? We are a skeptical people. We don't think words have inherent power. We have forgotten what happened when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That the Word who was in the beginning with God, that Word was God. And that Word has spoken. In the benediction, when I pronounce God's name upon you, I'm, I'm not asking God to do something or stating a hope that maybe God will do it. I am declaring the blessing of God. As Isaac rightly observed to Esau, there is only one blessing. When Isaac blessed Jacob, Esau objected that Jacob was the younger brother and he asked his father, is there no other blessing? Don't you have a blessing for me? And Isaac says, I have blessed him and he will be blessed. Because there is only one blessing. It is the blessing, the benediction that the father has pronounced upon his son in which All the blessings of heaven and earth come together. You can use all sorts of different language to express it. There's at least a dozen blessings in Scripture, all of which are useful starting places. But the heart of that blessing is what John tells us in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That One thing that David sought in Psalm 27, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That is the one thing that Psalm 29 leaves with us. May the Lord bless His people with peace.